This is Monica Lewis-Patrick, your water warrior. This is Marcus Robinson, Collaborations Executive Director. I'm Gwendolyn Winston. You're listening to One Song Playlist. Tony Dunbar. Hi, I'm Tony Dunbar, host of One Song Playlist. We appreciate you listening to the first season of OSPL, featuring my favorite song, the 1970 hit, Ooh Chow, by a Chicago family musical group, The Five Stair Steps. Our guests for this installment of OSPL are Professor Mama Gwen Winston and Monica Lewis-Patrick, two of Detroit's most effective and influential community organizers. Gwen is the president of G. Bailey Winston Enterprises and executive director of the Wisdom Institute. She is a master facilitator and one of the most respected and sought-after community organizers in southeastern Michigan. Monica is the CEO of We the People of Detroit, an organization that advocates for water as a human right. Many of you may know her and We the People of Detroit from work connected to the Flint Clean Water Crisis as well as Detroit Water Shutoff Crisis. As such, Monica is also known as the Water Warrior. This episode was recorded in December of 2020. I am so glad that when you reach out to someone and you don't know if you're going to get a yes or not, uh, speaking as a guy, and they say yes, it's almost like that that first time you asked a girl out, I wonder if she'll say yes. And then they say yes. So I have two yeses today. I have Mama Gwen, Gwen Winston, and I have Monica Pat- Lewis Patrick, also known as the Water Warrior, both out of the Detroit area. So yes, We've talked to folks from Salt Lake City, Los Angeles, Chicago, and now we're going to talk to people who contribute to the planet highly out of the Motor City. Ladies, welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Tony. All right. So we, we were chatting before I hit record about who we were and what we were doing uh, when Uchao came out. I'll go first. I was a precocious eight, eight and seven-year-old. That was my second grade third grade year right and back then it was am radio fm hadn't blown up yet and every time the song came on i was that kid in the back seat losing his cookies about turn it up (laughs) i could hear those first couple little bars of the song and i was like (laughs) please turn that up so uh monica was a, a little bit behind me she was she was the kindergartner grooving that's totally correct. Totally correct, Dr. Dunbar. I was in the back seat uh, because my mom was in nursing school and my uncle would have to drive me and my siblings to nursery school and elementary school. And he had a cutlass. Uh-oh, oh, had, oh yeah, oh yeah, he had a gold cutlass. And so there was nothing like being in the back of that cutlass and he would definitely turn it up and uh, of course, we thought they were talking to us. Yes. And so we would all turn into uh, these eight grandchildren of my grandmother's and the three of my mother's children. We thought we had turned into a choir of Wu Child. So, uh oh. Uh yeah, Uh-oh. yeah, yeah. I'm so, feeling you right now. <laughs> in, in Chicago, we used to call the Cutlasses the old the Bro Oldsmobile Brohams. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like we um, thought it was sweet. He had it decorated and it'd always be clean <laughs> and smelling good. So yeah, we didn't know it wasn't for us. It was for the ladies, but uh, we, we thought it was for us. 
I can only imagine considering that we're talking to uh, someone from Detroit that might have just came that might have literally came off the assembly line right to right to the showroom and into into his possession. Well, you know, my my Detroit roots uh, actually run through West Virginia and Tennessee. Uh oh. So we would come to Detroit in the summer. My grandfather is the seventh oldest brother of Willie Horton, a baseball player. And then his twin sister, my Aunt Faye, married Dr. Julius Griffith, who was the vice president of, uh, of public relations for Motown for 25 years. But he also was a speechwriter for Dr. King. He actually contributed to the mountaintop speech. So uh, we oh, see Lord. our roots through that, that lane. But I grew up in a little small town called Kingsport in Northeast Tennessee. Okay. So uh, we always have to make that connection. I have, I'm a Southerner. And I'm an adopted Detroiter. Mama Gwen. Oh man. Tell us man. about your time or the first time. Can you do you remember when you heard the Child the first time? Well, I, you know, I did a little bit of background uh checking how old I was. I was 23 at that time. Ooh. And I had a two-year-old son. So I'm really resonating with uh that time. Um in my life, because it was a trying time. <laughs> it was okay. trauma. And, um, and I was driving a Volkswagen because, Ooh, you know, dump, yeah, dump America. You know, I was in that age and that period where uh, uh, burn the sucker down is what <laughs> the message was uh, about America being in America. And um, uh, at 23, I had been working since I was 15. And at 23, I landed uh, with a, a housing development company and started traveling. And ooh, child, helped me through some, you know, some downtime where I, it was going to be better. And that was the the year I took my first uh, plane trip, plane uh -oh. ride. First time I've been on a plane. Went to a national convention and was in a different um, uh, city. I was in DC, as a matter of fact, and my life just like, ooh, child, it changed. Mm -hmm. It changed. I saw a different way of being with people, uh, not color struck, you know, not anti-woman. Um, there was all different people in DC, positions with the government having power, you know, uh, making yes. things happen yes. in the government. It was like, okay. Let me find my, let me find my black glove and get the soul power. You done got me fired up now. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, ooh, child. I'm ready to turn into ooh, John Carlos and Tommy Smith right now. <laughs> I can see it, yeah, I can feel it. You know, the, uh, my dancing even picked up. <laughs> <laughs> so there, there's two things that come to mind from your shares. First, with uh, with Gwen, um, I part of my childhood, my my mother's youngest brother. My mother is the oldest of six, and the next five are were boys. And my mm -hmm. mother's youngest brother had that uh, that Volkswagen VW Bug, the original, that had the motor in the back and the trunk <laughs> in the front. Instant memories came back, and I am a baseball junkie. In fact, my favorite baseball player recently passed, uh, mm. Dick Allen. But I, the Willie Horton was the original 23. There's a, a statue of him outside of Comerica 
uh, he used to light up a place called Tiger Stadium back in the day. And uh, strong brother, strong brother. He, there, there were certain brothers that uh, when they hit the ball, you could hear, the, you could feel the ball say, ouch. Like, you know, just a line <laughs> drive. Like, you know, some people hit it far, you know, but you, it, there, there's certain, when, when ooh. Like, so when the White Sox played the, uh, the Tigers, I was very aware of Willie Horton. That right um, fielder, that right fielder. Yes, 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 yes. What, what was interesting, uh, he played with a guy named Al Kaline back in the day. But what I always hear about Willie Horton was not only about him as a baseball player, but uh, what who he was as a person. Like, he that just wasn't the average dude walking around with sunflower seeds and bubble gum, chewing bubble gum and playing baseball. He was part of the Detroit community. He was always known as kind of an upstanding guy around in, in the baseball, you know, at, at a far. So that's what I remember uh, about him that uh, as a baseball fan that the man could hit and no one had a bad thing to say about him ever. But when you're the youngest of 18 and you come out of a family of, of hardworking coal miners uh, and what my granddaddy always talked about is he said, yeah, Willie pe plays baseball, but we do real work. We make cars. So, uh, <laughs> so I, I, I think having those older brothers keeping him humble uh, and then he, they all often tease him that my uncle Billy was a better baseball player than him. Ooh. He just got the big chance. So uh -oh. uh, <laughs> uh, there, there's some there's some checking him that happens that I believe keeps him humble and keeps him grounded. I, I get that. I get that. Uh, Monica, you also mentioned uh, Dr. King, that you had a family member did speech writing. And for the last... Uh, a couple of interviews, it's hard to talk about 1970 as the beginning of the post-civil rights and not for Dr. King not to come up at some point in those conversations. And I've talked to folks who talked about his speeches, who he was, the times, but I have yet to have anyone mention that they were related to one of his speech writers. You know, I know some of the names, the uh, Bayard Rustins and all that, but those are things that I've I've read out of the book. I don't haven't had any what they, as a librarian we call primary resource conversation. Someone that was there, so going to be excited to explore that a little. Well, if you get a chance, look up a term, uh, black exploitation. Yes, uh, that term was coined by Dr. Julius Griffith. Uh, it was uh, if you look at any historical reference to it, his name is definitely noted there, and so. Uh, he was the one inside the SDLC that was giving a more radical framing uh, to some of the things that Dr. King was stating while others were asking him to be, to tone it down, uh, to, to temper it a little bit. Uh, when you hear those, those hard punches, those are Dr. Julius Griffith. And part of what happened is that uh, he was actually recruited by Barry Gordy to do the spoken word series with Motown because of that hard hitting ability, but then his wordsmithing ability to sort of stay within a, a lane of respectability at the same time while throwing blows. And with that series, it was part of what brought together the voice to the nation of Dr. C.L. Franklin. It brought to the nation the voice of Dr. King. It brought to the nation the voice of none other than, uh, than the Honorable um, Malcolm X. So. You know, we have to give credit where credit is due. And 
Uh, when people talk about that speech, we're honored that he was a part of that, but his work went much deeper than that mountaintop speech. So two points of reference that you said, SCLC, Southern Christian Leadership Conference, and then you uh, mentioned a, a spiritual icon in Detroit, C.L. Franklin, who is the father of? None other than the Queen of Soul. Queen there is Soul. only one. Aretha Franklin. Aretha Franklin. So, yes, that that had that those had some 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 very de very deep uh, roots that you're, you're you're mentioning there. So, Gwen, you said that uh, in '70 uh, you were 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 you living in D.C. or were you uh, just had, was that the place that you traveled to from Detroit on on that on that first area plane ride? I was, I was, I have, I'm, I am uh, a, a native Detroiter, born and raised in Detroit, uh, lived on the North End, um, moved to the Northwest side of Detroit when I was in uh, what was known as junior high at that time. Um, so I'm a, I'm a native Detroiter and um, living through all of the positives and the negatives and when I was 23 years old, I had uh, graduated from I had graduated from college. Uh, I had experience of being a high school student and a co-op student. I called they call them interns or something else. They call there's another name for it. And, and I have been uh, worked in a progressive uh, black church. Um, uh, the minister of the church eventually became uh, city council, the second black on the Detroit city council. So uh, I had been involved in civil rights uh, and uh, movements vicariously, right? Because I was uh, a secretary. I was an administrative person that I was in the room, in the, in the back room, taking the notes recording the history. And then I learned along the way that, that how powerful that position could be because the sister told me at one time, she who takes the notes controls the meeting. And it was like the best lesson I had ever learned, right? That warms my heart as, a, as an archivist because the way records are kept and, 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 the, and the, peep, the, the, the story works out of primary resources. So the notes and the, those things that where historians go back to, to, to recreate stories were based out of the things that you, you just mentioned you're, you're doing. So uh, the archivist librarian and me salute. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. Particularly in the black community, the, the, uh, a lot of the things that just being able to do things like that separate the mythology from the truth. Right. So if black folks are telling their stories from the notes they take or the, the videos they make and they keep control of those, those are because they own you always own your story. Again, that I, I may I'm not trying to get too deep here, but yes, big props to that. Big props to that. I'm glad you mentioned that. I'm going to uh, uh, pivot a little bit. Uh, we were talking about Willie Horton and Gwen was talking and we mentioned Dr. King in 67, so Monica was really small uh, when the Detroit riots happened. And that that was the year, well, it wasn't even quite a year, they were in July before Dr. The July before the uh, April assassination of Dr. King when they had the Detroit riots. And I've watched a couple documentaries 
And I remember they saying that some of the athletes were, were the ones that were willing, black athletes were willing to go in the community to talk to folks, not necessarily tell them they were wrong, but to deal with some of the pain that, that, that they were experienced. And Willie's name came up in that as well. I'm gonna start with Gwen. Um, your memories about the 1967 uh, Detroit riots. I lived in the neighborhood that was right in the middle of it. Uh, I lived uh, off on Rochester Street off of Linwood and Chicago. Uh, the National Guard was posted at uh, Central High School, which was down the street from me. And uh, I tell you, I was afraid. <laughs> there was gunfire everywhere. And, um, you know, in our nationalist understanding, it was probably the military that was doing most of the shooting. Uh, tanks were being driven up and down the street. One of the icons out of that uh, era, out of the riot, was this white statue of uh, Jesus at the Catholic seminary and the face was plain, painted black. And uh, someone at the seminary, uh, someone, I don't know who it was, someone repainted the face white and the seminarians painted it black again. Uh, there was, there was a, so much looting. Uh, I was married at the time and uh, my husband wanted to go and be in the midst of all of this. And I wanted to get away from it. And so I moved uh, I went to stay with my mother in Northwest Detroit. Sometimes I think the stories about the riot where we were, uh, people were uh, angry, protesting against our oppression and repression. I, I always wonder how much of that was for real or how much of, of, of that was, we gonna get something, we gonna get something that we haven't been able to get. So we, we're going to go into these stores and take it away. I never understood why the, we would destroy our home, our own homes, <laughs> our own stores. And to this day, they have not yet been rebuilt. You know, um, so that's the sense of sadness that I have, but the, but the, 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 the historical, um, result, the, his, the result of government response did in fact impact us in a positive way and that we saw our presence more visibly in society and operations of government and corporations. So it did open the way um, uh, it did open the way for us to stand in our power and voice more openly what was in our hearts and those who were the organizers or the so-called leaders at that time. Some actually were leaders. Many were so-called leaders. Uh, and their voices began to uh, be lifted by the establishment in order to appease, uh, in an attempt to appease the people. Um, we clearly had uh, challenges working through a nationalist vision, um, apologists, 
vision of what life should be among Black people in Detroit. So, wow, um, wow, wow. Monica, what are the what are the stories of that have come through your family and, and the, the legacy uh, around the riots and the civil rights movement from your point of view? I, I think in our family there there's a couple of stories that circulate. It was uh, the tensions that our family uh, was feeling down south and all across the country as we were getting uh, stories out of Detroit. So I remember being very small and just in the room as adults were scaring about and whispering and uh, caucusing. I remember my grandmother pacing. Uh, I remember my grandfather and some of the other brothers that lived down south uh, out in the backyard uh, with a, a couple of mason jars of, of uh, white lightning, um, <laughs> caucusing, if you will, mm -hmm. as black men often do in, in, in barbershops and backyards. Yes. Uh, so I just remember not fully understanding what was happening, but knowing something serious was happening. Mm -hmm. uh, so recalling that feeling of angst. Uh, and then uh, you know, I, I think I'd have to uplift and join uh, Mama Gwen uh, at least around the critical voices that were elevated in that moment. Um, I know that people will recall those photos, those iconic photos of the late great Congressman John Conyers yes. uh, addressing the crowd and reaching out, not, as you said, to blame, but to galvanize that energy in a direction that was pushing policy and pushing change. Uh, you're right, there were Black athletes that understood that it was a critical moment of racial divide and really uh, a very volatile moment, but also understanding that they had a uh, commitment and relationship to their communities and they still lived in the communities. We don't have these sort of prima donna athletes we have now where they live out in the suburbs and they don't live in the city that they play ball for. Yeah. Uh, they actually used to live in the neighborhood. So you'd see them walking to the to the field. As a matter of fact, the kids would stand outside the stadium and wait for the balls to come over the fence. So there was still a relationship with communities. So I believe that when Uncle Willie went out to uh, address the crowd, it wasn't about a photo op for ESPN. It was about him loving his community and his people and understanding that we were in a very delicate situation and I think he wanted to use that, that tiger logo as a buffer, as a shield, if you will, from what we knew uh, was a very racially targeted, violent moment. This is Monica Lewis Patrick, your water warrior. You've just listened to One Song Playlist with Tony Dunbar. This is Tony Dunbar, host of One Song Playlist, and thank you for listening to part one of our interview with the Motown Matriarchs, Gwen Winston, and Monica Lewis-Patrick. There are four parts to this fantastic interview. Parts one and two will be available to the general public and tier one subscribing members of our One Song Playlist Patreon community. On Patreon, you can support this podcast as a subscriber. For more information and to subscribe, go to patreon.com forward slash one song playlist that is p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash O-N-E-S-O-N-G-P-L-A-Y-L-I-S-T. 
There is also great information on our One Song Playlist website, which is onesongplaylist.com.